I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your guide to the whitetail woods. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light, go farther, stay longer. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This week on the show, I'm joined by Kyle Leibarger of the Native Habitat Project to explore the potential for managing our deer properties with a holistic native ecosystem focus. All right, welcome to the Wired Hunt Podcast, brought to you by First Light. This week on the show, we are wrapping up Habitat Month with a bang, and uh, and with, I'd say, a bit of a philosophical twist of sorts. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to throw a curveball at you here, right at the end of our series, because I, you know, that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to surprise and delight and educate and uh, that's what we have in store for you today, as we've got one more habitat discussion for the month with our guest, Kyle Leibarger. Now, Kyle is an Alabama resident and hunter, so uh, shout out to all you folks in the South. He's a graduate from Alabama A&M with a forestry degree. He's a consulting professional forester, the founder of the Native Habitat Project, and a bit of a social media video star. They call these kids TikTokers these days, I think, who's who's come to widespread notoriety by way of these educational videos that he's sharing all across social media about native plants and wildlife, ecosystem management and restoration and conservation. And you know he's someone who I've actually had a number of different folks reach out to me and say, hey, you should really talk to Kyle. You should talk to Kyle. But just recently, somebody I really respect, a forester and land manager and conservationist himself, this person reached out to me and said that he sees Kyle, or he sees in Kyle, the beginnings of a young Craig Harper. And if you don't know, Craig Harper is one of the absolute foremost, I mean, top of the line 
top of the top of the top educators and communicators about wildlife habitat management. So that's a high compliment indeed. Uh, so that's why I'm excited to have Kyle here. And it's also because I think the topic we're going to discuss here is, is a needed way to cap this month. Uh, you might have noticed the past three weeks of discussion, there's been a lot of chat. There's been a lot of focus on on hunting. You know, By that, I mean there's been this very strong focus on how our habitat projects, improvements, manipulations, how they can make our hunting better. Very tactical stuff. You know, Plant this plot in this kind of way. It'll help you get a shot at a deer. Put in this bedding area in this kind of way, in this kind of size, you'll have a better chance at an archery shot, whatever it is, something like that. And that's good stuff. It's fun stuff. It's helpful. I enjoy it just as much as the next guy. But Kyle, our guest today, wants us to consider more than just hunting when we get to working on our properties. He wants us to zoom out a bit and look at the whole ecosystem, all the animals, all the plants, everything in there all tied together, and consider if we can do more than just manipulate these places to kill more deer. Maybe we can restore and steward and create something that has a far wider positive impact on the land and creatures around us. That's our topic of conversation today. It's, it's why expanding our view of land management to focus not just on deer, but on the goal of restoring the entire native ecosystem is worthwhile, and how we can each do it. We talk native grasslands, pollinators, wildflowers, water quality, food plot replacements, creating native food plot screens, timber management, creating wildlife openings, and a, and a whole lot more, really. Um, so please, if you listen to the first three episodes in our series, please listen to this one too. I really think it works as a perfect bow to wrap around this whole month-long series. You know, the ideas discussed across these four weeks, they don't need to be considered separately or as kind of an either-or kind of decision. You, you don't need to take, you know, what Bobby and Toby said last week and then take what Kyle's going to tell you today and choose between the two. It's my belief that we can actually incorporate all of this different thinking into a new amalgam in our own you know, mold of what we're trying to achieve and the things that matter to us. We can, in my you know, belief, improve our deer hunting and manage for the entirety of the ecosystem. We can steward native grasslands and still create great food plots. We can have better deer hunting and also help birds and bugs and quail and water quality and carbon sequestration and all sorts of stuff like that. That's possible. So I'm, I'm very excited about this discussion covering all of that kind of stuff. But this brings me, this kind of ties into another topic I wanted to mention here. An, ex, an, an exciting, I'm trying to say exciting, but I'm combining it with the word announcement. An exciting announcement that I want to share with you about something I've been working on here for a while and it's going to be kicking off in about a month. Something I'm calling the Working for Wildlife Tour. You see, there's all sorts of incredible events across the country put on by states and conservation organizations that bring together hunters and anglers to volunteer their time and efforts to improve wildlife habitat, restore ecosystems, clean trash, and so much more. Generally, in many different ways, giving back to the public lands and waters we love so much. So a lot of what we've talked about over the past three and a half, now four weeks, has been about how you can do this kind of good stuff on private lands. Well, we can also do that kind of stuff, even if you don't own land, you can do this kind of stuff on public lands and waters. And there's all sorts of these events all over the place. 
that need volunteers, but they're slipping by under the surface without a lot of attention and not as much participation as they need. And I want to help change that. So this year, with the Working for Wildlife Tour, we're going to shine a spotlight on a bunch of these different volunteer habitat days across the country. And as part of that, I'm actually going to go out there and attend and participate in these events myself, hopefully bringing along some of my friends from Meat Eater and First Light to work on improving our public lands and our waters. And I'm inviting you to join me. You know, I talk to you guys every week here on the show, as do a bunch of other folks at Meat Eater, but we rarely get to connect with you, our community members, in person anymore. And I want to help change that. So I'm excited to meet a bunch of you at these Habitat Days. I want to answer your questions. I want to hear your stories, sign some books, give away some free stuff, and then get our hands dirty together doing good stuff for wildlife. And I do think, uh, from what I understand, each of these volunteer events will be followed by some kind of social shindig afterwards as well. So not only are we going to work for wildlife, but we're going to have a good time and meet some like-minded folks too. So that's you know that's a win-win as far as I'm concerned. Now, the specific details for these events, for each one of these events that are going to be part of the tour, that's still getting ironed out. We're just about there, um, but I want to you know button up a couple more things. But I can tell you we've got events starting as soon as late March and running all the way into October. And I'm going to be visiting locations as far east as Massachusetts and as far west as Idaho. We're trying to cover just about each major region of the country. So hopefully there's going to be something that's within a reasonable drive for all of you. Um, I'll announce the specific details for each of these individual events here on the Wired Hunt podcast, on social media, on the Mediator website, and all those places. So stay tuned for the specifics. But this is the basic gist. This is what I want you guys to be getting ready for. Um, I'm excited. It's almost time to hit the road, do some work for wildlife. And, and I, do, I do really believe this. I really do believe that we each have this ability to give back to these places and critters that we enjoy so much as hunters and anglers. We can make a difference. And I'm just excited to go out there and do some of that work right there alongside of you. So I want to meet you guys. I want to shake your hand. I want to pick up some trash next to you. I want to stack some brush, cut down some invasives, plant some trees, who knows what. Uh, I am looking forward to it. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for more on the Working for Wildlife Tour very soon. Probably as soon as maybe next week I'll have more. And uh, I'm just excited. Very, very excited. So without the way, let's get into this week's conversation. Let's wrap up our month-long Habitat series with my chat with Kyle Leibarger. Here we go. All right. Now here with me straight off of the Wild Turkey uh convention extravaganza that just happened we've got kyle Liberger from the native habitat project how are you kyle oh doing good other than a little bit hoarse from two days of uh talking non-stop so working working on getting my voice back but uh hopefully we'll make it through this podcast without any problems <laughs> did you uh did you enjoy all that turkey talk oh yeah no man it's uh that's, that's that's my favorite thing to do and that's uh that's probably why why i make make content because my wife gets tired of hearing me talk about it and uh so it's nice to be around a bunch of people who actually want to uh listen and, and uh hear about that kind of stuff and and have conversations so it's a that was it's a good time man yeah yeah being around like-minded folks excited about the same things uh that is that's a recipe for a good time and oh, yeah. uh 
And I guess that's why I'm excited about today too, Kyle, because we're we're in the midst of this. We're actually wrapping up um, our Habitat Month on the podcast. We've spent you know all February talking to people about different ways to manage habitat, to improve land, to work the ground in one way or another, to you know help wildlife populations and deer hunting or, or any of these other things that a lot of our folks like to do. Um, but I'll I'll be honest, a lot of our focus this year in this month has been, you know, our guests have been pretty tactical, pretty hunting focused. Um, we've talked to a couple folks recently who take a, you know, a very strategic tactical approach to doing stuff like just to make the deer hunting better. And, mm-hmm. and that's something that, you know, a lot of people are interested in. I've certainly learned a lot from it. I find it very interesting, but there's this other part of the habitat uh, topic that we haven't talked about as much this time. We've talked about in previous podcasts with other people, but this month it just hasn't been um, kind of the, it just hasn't been as prominent as some of our other discussions. And so when I was thinking about who I wanted to bring on to kind of close this thing down and to wrap it up and tie a bow on it, uh, you came to mind because your work, especially how you've uh, shared some of your philosophies and ideas around managing native ecosystems has really flourished and gained a really strong following in social media. You've got a massive following across Instagram and TikTok and your YouTube channel, all these different places where folks have really found your message to resonate with them. This message that you seem to have around managing for native ecosystems, not just for one critter, but really trying to bring back what was here, what should be here and what could be here in a way that helps, you know, reach all sorts of different goals. So that is a long winded way of saying, Kyle, I'm curious to you or for you, why does this matter? Why do native ecosystems matter to you? Why has this become your life's work? And, um, well, I got a short little story. Um, back in, uh, 2015, 2016, I was, I was in school for forestry um, um, with a concentration of wildlife. I was working for the state fish and wildlife and I had this hunting property that I was managing. It was about 40 acres and, you know, mostly timbered and it had uh, several small open spots. And uh, I tried to make those open spots bigger by cutting down a bunch of cedar trees. And this is before I knew anything before I knew most of my native plants. Um, and I went through, I sprayed the whole place with glyphosate um, to try to turn it into a food plot. I even brought in trailer, a trailer load of like compost to try to build the soil up. And, uh, that all washed away the first year. Um, but the next summer I, I was in there, I noticed where I cut down those cedar trees. It was just like a rainbow of color of just different plants that I had never ever seen before. I mean, I was in forestry school, I'd graduated forestry school and I had no idea what these plants were. And I'd realized that's what used to be, on the interior of that field. Um, I, and I had killed it off to try to make a food plot. So I, I took what was, you know, to make a long story short after I, you know, took the time to figure out what these plants were. I invited a botanist friend out there with me and he was just in awe of what was there. Tons of rare species, state listed species, county records that have never been documented in my county before. Um, I realized that I had I had sprayed and killed off something that was better for wildlife than what I was trying to plant there. And and man, that's what I think that's the the moment that 
that kind of flipped a switch to like, hey, maybe this is what I should be managing for. And maybe these plants are what I should be looking for on other properties. So as I, as I, you know, as I became a forester and was working on a lot of private lands, I was looking for a lot of those same species that I saw on that, on that uh, property. And they weren't, they weren't on most properties. Most places were, they were mowing them and, um, you know, it was closed canopy. But when we go in there and do a timber harvest, then we'd start seeing some of those same species, maybe not the diversity this place has. And I've come to figure out the place that I I, uh, first started with was one of the higher quality sites in my area. So, but even if I could find half the plants on a property, that place was pretty diverse. And I wasn't finding that most of the time um, on on 90% of properties, but every now and then I'd come across it. And, And it was those properties that I found them on that had the most wildlife diversity. There was turkeys there. They still had turkeys or quail and they had great deer populations. Um, and, and that's when, you know, you know, I'm very ADD and I'm, I can't sit down and listen, but when I'm very visual and when I, when I saw that for myself, I was like, man, this is the way to go. This is what we should be doing. Um, and as hunters, man, that's, um, uh, we're, we're the, we're the ones out there putting in the time and the money, and, uh, you know, buying equipment to do this kind of stuff. And, you know, maybe this is what we should really be focused on. So, um, you know, long story short, I, I now got the native habitat project and try to try to make other people see the light like I did. Yeah. So imagine you were on an elevator and a hardcore deer hunter land manager steps on the elevator with you and you're going to go up to the 20th floor. So you got a couple minutes, but it's not a ton of time before he's going to hop off that elevator and go to his room, wherever he's staying. Maybe you guys are at NWTF. You're at the convention together. and You know that this guy is the typical whitetail hunter and land manager. He puts in a bunch of food plots. He maybe does some timber cutting or some hinge cutting to create a couple bedding areas, but he's got a bunch of monoculture food plots, and all of his work is dedicated just to growing big deer and shooting more big deer. How would you, how would you present your philosophy to this guy, and how would you pitch him on considering it, if you had just these few minutes to kind of get across to him, like, hey, here's the different way I'm recommending, and here's why it might be worth considering. What would you tell that guy? When you're managing a place with biodiversity, when you've got <clears throat> sometimes hundreds of species of grasses and sedges and wildflowers and shrubs. You're providing food year round and not just food, you browse, you're providing insects for turkeys and quail. Um, you're providing cover for those deer. Um, you're providing uh, cover during fawning season for those does. You're providing a food source during fawning season, a food source during hunting season. It's, it's a year round. Uh, you know, that's these ecosystems these native ecosystems, they don't have room for plants that aren't pulling their weight um, year round, or uh, they don't have, they don't have, um, I guess they don't have space for um, just monocultures. And that's why most of our native species don't form monocultures. Um, and there I am getting, this is, uh, we're probably on the 19th floor now, but um, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm uh, you know, not just managing for deer, we're managing for an ecosystem and the more biodiversity you have, the more things that you're providing 
year round. And they're not just one, that one species isn't just providing food. Like a lot of our food plot stuff are, it's providing, it's providing browse, but it's also providing um, seeds that it's producing when it flowers and it's providing, um, it's attracting insects and it's providing cover. That one plant, you know, one native plant is doing multiple things that maybe that one species you're planting as, mo- as a monoculture can't do. And so you're less likely to not have that one thing that you're lacking. Um, and sometimes, you know, people, hunters don't realize that, you know, what they're doing in the landscape is leaving out something, you know, they might not have, they're like, where's my turkey? Well, you might not have that cover. Um, but when you're managing a native ecosystem, you don't have to worry about that because you're going to have pretty much everything and, and there's not going to be any limiting factors most of the time. So uh, what if this person on that elevator with you is thinking to himself, well, man, when I look out there on the property, like that mother nature's already doing this. It's already managing the ecosystem. I'm seeing trees here. I see grasses here. I see stuff all around, you know, why do I really need to do anything or how could I really make an impact in some way that's actually better than just planting my food plots. Like I put in a food plot, I see this instant change. Um, to -hmm. that person, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say here, not very clearly is when you say manage for a native ecosystem, why do we need to quote unquote manage a native ecosystem? Shouldn't it naturally be doing that? Something like someone might be saying. Yeah. Um, well, for one, we've removed fire from the landscape. And most of the time, that disturbance is what would have kept these places diverse. When you, Even on some of the best remnants I manage, if you remove fire from that landscape, little blue stem is going to take over. And then you're going to start seeing a decrease in wildflowers. And you're thinking wildflowers. Why do I give a crap about wildflowers? They're a wildflower. All it is to wildlife is a thing that attracts insects for their, you know, well, for turkeys and quail to consume. And a thing that produces seeds for them to consume. Um, so it's not really a wildfire. It's a, it's a food, it's a thing, something that's providing a food source. Um, and so we've removed fire from the landscape, but we've also introduced invasives to the landscape. So on most properties I go on, there's invasives everywhere, um, whether it's non-native turf grasses or invasive shrubs, you know, Cerecia lesbidiza. Um, and these invasives, uh, don't act like native species. They want to take over and form monocultures most of the time. Um, and so it, that requires us to go in there initially and remove those invasives and create it, that give that environment back to those native species to thrive again. Um, so to me, those are the two you know, big reasons that we now have to step in and play a role on these places. Yeah. What about this? You know, you talk, you mentioned natives versus invasives a lot. And there are, I guess there's, there's two kind of uh, devil's advocates positions on this. One would say, you know, why does it really matter at all? Like, you know, if, it, if, it, if the deer are eating it, why does it matter? If the, if the turkeys are hanging out in it, why does it matter if it's native or invasive? So that's question number one. How would you argue that? And question number two is, um, you know, we are, we are, uh, how do I describe this? 
in, this is the way of the future. Like this stuff keeps happening. Invasives are moving in. Everything is spreading all over the place. There's nothing you can do at this point. It's a lost cause. This is the new normal. Those would be two possible devil's advocate positions to to your native habitat philosophy. Mm-hmm. How would you address those two things? Well, first of all, um, you just because a deer eats something doesn't mean that's good habitat because they're basically a goat. You know, you could put a deer in a in a uh, <clears throat> in the richest neighborhood in Alabama. You could put a deer there, and they're going to survive. Um, and I know that's something a lot of deer hunters don't want to hear, but <laughs> daggum, I mean, look at other wildlife species, and they're I mean they're highly they're specialists, and they they have to have insects, or they have to have uh, flower and seeds there, or they have to have a certain type of cover or they can't reproduce deer. I mean, they can basically live anywhere. And then, you know, there's plenty of deer hunters that can attest for that, you know, killing giant deer in the middle of urban areas. And um, so for one, that's, that that's not really a measurement of how good an ecosystem is. Um, and so we have to look at what kind of, you know, what species are the canary in the coal mine, that are, are telling us, hey, maybe this ecosystem isn't what it should be. And those are the specialist species like quail and, and turkeys. And those are species that we're seeing declines in across the country. And, and not just those species, but also uh, non-game species, uh, songbirds and insects. We're seeing decline in those numbers. And that's because those things were really, really, really depend on our native ecosystems. And so, so look at those look at those species and do you have those on your property? Because in North Alabama, I, I'm lucky to see uh, a covey of quail once every year or two. Um, and it's because those are the ones who can't stand those invasives. So if you only care about deer and you don't care about those species, then yeah, I mean, let your property get taken over with invasives because the deer, I mean, they're, they're going to be just fine. Um, but it's those other things that aren't going to be just fine. And, and I think those are those species are worthwhile as well. Um, I mean, I want to make sure we still have those species around for future generations of hunters because your kids and your grandkids, they're probably going to be deer hunters, but they might be interested in, in turkey hunting or quail hunting. And so when you're managing deer with this, you know, by managing native ecosystems, you're, you're giving that option to your kids and grandkids to, to also, you know, hunt woodcock or rabbits or or quail and and all those other species that are very you know they're specialists and really depend on these native ecosystems so uh, yeah. maybe i hope that answered it yeah yeah now what to the, what about the second part which was uh, it's a foregone conclusion everything invasive is going everywhere there's no way we can return to native everything because we've already changed so much what do you say to that person no it's we can you can make a difference on a property um and I see examples of that every day. Um, and it's, and it's really about how you manage it. Yeah. There's situations where you might be fighting an invasive and you're not having any luck with it. And you're like, man, this is a lost cause. Well, it could have been your, it could have been your, your strategy. That could have been the problem. You could have had a, a bad strategy or an approach. So for example, if you've got an understory full of privet and autumn olive and bush honeysuckle or, and you go in there and you do a timber harvest and, you know, bring in a ton of sunlight. And then you come in with a mulcher and just start spraying it. 
And then that same year you come in and try to plant new hardwoods. Well, gum. I mean, you set yourself up for a very bad situation because the first thing you did was bring in sunlight, which is going to make those invasives explode. Um, so you probably should have gone in there before you even did a timber harvest and mulch those invasives, spent several years spraying those stump sprouts to come back, which is it's very easy because all those species, for the most part, have green leaves in the wintertime. And so you can go through there with glyphosate and spray it, and you're not going to kill your native species that are dormant. And once you've got that under control, then you can come in and do your timber harvest, and then you can come in and plant new hardwoods and trees if that's what you want to do. Um, but it's really all about the approach because, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of approaches that I've, I've done to get rid of invasives where I was like, man, that was just a lost cause. I think I might have made things worse. But it's really about the strategy. So you have to sit down and figure out how to approach it first. And then it might be something very simple. It might, I mean, to me, that's a very easy approach to getting rid of, uh, you know, privet and autumn olive or honeysuckle. Um, for having that option to spray them in the wintertime and not kill your native species, that makes it a whole lot easier and, and easier to accomplish. But it's easy to see how, you know, somebody else who, who didn't go that route could have, you know, made it worse. And then, you know, then they've kind of like, you know, they're kicking themselves and down on themselves for, for, uh, you know, you know, these invasives and they just give up on even trying to get rid of them. So, um, just learn, learn what you get. Learn what you have on your property, learn the invasive species, and then spend a year trying to figure out how to get rid of them and the approach to take to get rid of them. And that's where, you know, I started a group, Native Habitat Managers, on, uh, on, on Facebook. And we were in the, you know, there you have the Habitat Managers group on Facebook. And there was, you know, about eight of us guys in there who were really into managing native ecosystems. And we were like, hey, let's start our own. And let's start it, you know, we want a group that has hunters in there and non-hunters we want botanists we want foresters because those botanists and those foresters they know how to manage these places they know the plants and you know they usually know how to get rid of them and so we made this community of hunters and non-hunters which is we we were like this is going to go you know this is going to be awful um but it's actually gone really well um and there's very little conflict in there and now it's become a place where you can go and ask questions like hey I've got these invasives that I'm just really overwhelmed with who's had success. And, and then you get a, you know, just last week we had a comment section full of, of people managing Japanese steelgrass and having success getting rid of Japanese steelgrass. And even myself, that's one that I almost have given up on, on my property, but it's because I was going about it wrong. I was trying to get rid of it uh, in a way that probably wasn't the smartest way to get rid of it. And now, you know, I've got the group and I've seen how all these other people are having success. And, uh, you know, this year I'm going to try what those guys have been having success with. So um, learn your property, learn what you have that's invasive and go to a group like Native Habitat Managers and say, hey, I've got this invasive. How are y'all getting rid of it? Or go to the top and just search um, Japanese steelgrass and you're going to get 10 posts of people talking about how to get rid of Japanese steelgrass. So um, it's really it's not a lost cause. It's, it's definitely a worthwhile task and you'll be thanking yourself for doing it. And, you know, maybe three or four years from now, but you'll be thanking yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I heard you talk once about, you know, 
not only does managing for the ecosystem in the way you're discussing and managing for native versus invasive, not only does that actually help, you know, in a tangible um, hunting kind of way or like help you in your, reach whatever your wildlife goals are, but there's also maybe a little bit of a, I don't know if moral obligation is the right word for it, but there's there's some kind of obligation we have to give back to these places since we're taking from them as, as hunters. Right. And then also not only that, but also the public perception of what we do and how, how we manage might be viewed. So for example, if all we do is plant food plots because we want to kill more deer, um, that does not nearly have the same optics as, us hunters who like to claim that we're the original conservationists managing and helping and trying to restore and protect and conserve the entire ecosystem and pollinators just as much as bees and, or just as much as bucks and, you know, songbirds just as much as turkeys. Um, can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Am I, am I, yeah. am I explaining yeah. your position right? Or yeah, is that I wrong? The man. Perfect. That's, that's, that's exactly how I feel. And, you know, we, for one, you know, as, as hunters, there's things that we're, we've done in the past that our granddads or our dads have done and that we're, we've already seen the light on. And even if you're somebody who, who isn't into managing native habitats, you see that, you see how, you know, as, a, as hunters have evolved. Um, and, and it's not to say that the past generation didn't know what they were doing or that they were, you know, out to do harm but they made mistakes and those are mistakes that we, we need to learn from and do our best to not do those again. Because, you know, let's say, you know, let's just, for example, Bradford pear, somebody in North America bred Bradford pear and started putting it on the market. Well, who's getting blamed for planting that Bradford pear. It's not that person who brought it to market. It's the homeowners. Um, in the, in the area. And, and we don't want to be, you know, hunters don't, we don't want to be in that position to where we're like, all right, yeah, we brought in autumn olive. We brought in, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, not trifoliate orange, um, bicolored lespediza, you know, these invasive species that, um, that are now wrecking havoc and causing harm we brought in. Well, let's learn our lesson from those and let's manage native ecosystems because we essentially become bulletproof when that happens. If, if we're the ones out there managing native ecosystems, not just for deer, but for, you know, all wildlife as a whole and trying to improve biodiversity or trying to, you know, as a, as a hunter in my area, I've been going around on roadsides. And if I find a rattlesnake master and I'm like, man, I haven't seen that around here much at all. I grab some seeds of that rattlesnake master and I'm now growing plugs of it or planting it on my hunting property. And, and just to, you know, for selfish reasons, I'm improving the, 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 the plant communities on my hunt property and essentially improving my wildlife populations on my property. But to the public, I'm conserving a plant species. And, and to me, that's just, you know, that's brownie points. The more brownie points we can get to the pub, get from the public, the, the, the better chance kids and our grandkids are going to be able to hunt in the future because we're the ones actually out here doing real conservation work and not just the conservation work that we think 
is going to make us kill a big deer. The conservation work that's going to that's managing ecosystems as a whole and improving deer populations and those you know non-game species populations as well. So I don't know. I think it's just a way to make hunters a little more bulletproof from the public, and and that can't hurt. That can't. Um, that can only be. That can only benefit us in the long run. So that's why I really push on that. Um, I think it's as hunters, um, we should really get back to focusing on conservation first. And, and, uh, I think, you know, back in the day, that's why, that's what we were focused on when, you know, when hunters started out, that's what our main goal was, was conservation. And I'm not saying that's totally shifted, but I don't think that's the main focus anymore. And I think we should get back to that. And, and, uh, I don't know, it's just the little things, man. That's, that's the kind of stuff I enjoy. I, I probably enjoy finding rare wildflowers on the side of the road, bringing them back to my property, um, more than I do hunting now, just because it's, a uh, you get, you get a whole lot out of it, man. It's a, and it makes your, your hunting experience a whole lot more enjoyable. When you're sitting there on your property and you, you know what those deer are walking by and you know what they're consuming and you know, you had a hand in making sure this negative ecosystem was back and intact in the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. So I guess the next thing, if, if I'm, well, I am listening to this, but if I were listening to this on the other end of the microphone or on the speakers and this were resonating with me, I think the next thing I'd be thinking is, well, how do I start? Like, how do I, how do I incorporate these ideas or this philosophy into a property management plan? Is it, is it as simple as, well, I got to go out and just kill every invasive species I can find, or is it, I got to get rid of my food plots and put in grasslands or no. is it, you know, you, what, how do you incorporate these ideas into a plan, into, you know, a management philosophy for someone who is a deer hunter wants to improve their hunting, but also wants to start doing these things you're talking about. How do we start thinking about that? Well, so at the bare minimum, if you're listening to this and <clears throat> you want to know what you can do, and this is this takes no effort at all. Don't plant invasive species on your property. Um, don't contribute to the problem because, you know, as, as somebody who's walked a ton of private land, everyone has invasives, and the problem that invasives are such a huge problem. Like we 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 have three thousand or like thirty one hundred native species in Alabama. We've introduced 6,500 species in – wait, did I say that right? Did I say 30? I said 3,100 in Alabama. We've introduced 6,500 species of in, invasive species to the U.S. I'm not talking non-native. Wow. And I'm not talking – soybeans are non-native, but they're not invasive. Um, that, there's nothing wrong with soybeans. If you want to plant soybeans on your property, go – have at it. You're not going to cause problems for future generations by planting soybeans. I'm talking 6,500 species that are invasive. We've introduced twice the amount of invasive plants to the U.S. than there are native plants in one of the most biodiverse states in the country. Um, and that's alarming. So at the bare minimum, just make sure what you're planting isn't invasive. And there's still invasives in some of these food plot seed mixes. But, you know, the majority of food plot mixes are totally fine and you're not going to do anything wrong unless you're doing what I did and when go in and kill off a, a really biodiverse area. But my advice is, is find your worst area on your property. If you want to put food plot, which I'm, I'm all for, if you want a food plot on your property, find the worst area. Find the spot where maybe you have a ton of fescue or a ton of lespedeza 
or you have privet taken over, clear that area, get rid of those invasives, plant your food plot there. Um, but make sure it's a mix that doesn't have invasive species in it. So I think, you know, at, at the bare minimum as hunters, we should stop planting invasives or things that can become invasive or things that are going to be permanent on the landscape. And the next, um, the next uh, landowner is going to have to deal with, we don't, we don't want to add anything that isn't going to allow, uh, our native plants and native biodiversity to thrive. Um, but you know, but yeah, starting to, you know, that's, that was the first step, the bare minimum. Um, but if you really want to make a difference on your property, get rid of invasives, you know, um, figure out what the worst place on your property is, figure out where, what plants you have that are problems. Get, get the iNaturalist app. Or, man, I love the iNaturalist app. There's other great apps, picture this or uh, Google Lens and things like that. But on iNaturalist, you can go around and take pictures of plants and it'll tell you what they are. You can find out if they're native or invasive and you can look at a map to see where other people are seeing that plant in the country. Um, which to me is, is really awesome. There's plants, there's native plants that I've found in Alabama that nobody else in Alabama has documented yet. And that's how <laughs> I, I discovered, I discovered new species for the state that way on properties. They weren't my properties. They were other people's properties, but man, how cool would that be yeah. to find a new plant species on your, for the state on your property? Um, but do that, figure out what you have that's native and what you have that's non-native and just start trying to get rid of the non-natives and start trying to encourage the native species and then do like what I did. You know, if you find some cool native species on a roadside or something, you know, collect some seeds and introduce those to your property, improve upon the native uh, plant communities and try to get rid of the non-native plant communities. That's a, a good place to start. And that looks a little bit different in woodlands and, and than it does in fields, you know, you're going to deal with different invasive species in different areas. Um, and I can't tell you what's going to be invasive in your area because, you know, in Tennessee, uh, 30 minutes from my house, everybody's dealing with, with a tree of heaven. Um, Alanthus in my area, we don't have tree of heaven. That's not a problem yet. Um, so just very short distances, invasives that people are dealing with changes, and the way to manage those changes, and that's why you know, it's a you got to learn what's on your property and learn what you're dealing with uh, first, first of all. And to me, that's the the best first step you can take to to do the kind of things I'm talking about. Yeah. So almost you got to do a you need to do a survey of what you're yeah. working with to start, right? Take an invent take an inventory. Yeah. And and uh, you know, with iNaturalist, you can create a list of what's on your property, and that's something I've done on my place. You know, five years ago, I sprayed and killed off all my fescue. Every year, I walk through my property. Well, in the afternoons, me and my family walk around that field. I use, I made mowed trails around the field that I use as, uh, I use as fire lines, but also use as walking trails with my family. And every year, I walk through, I take pictures of anything, any plants I haven't seen before. And I've got a whole inventory of what's native or what's, what's returned to my property um, after killing off that fescue. And man, as a, you know, you're a landowner, how cool would it have been if, uh, well, how cool is it going to be for the person who owns the property after you, if you've got a list of what you're seeing yeah. now in 2023, man, how, if, if I had a list of the plants people were seeing on a property back in the 1990s, that'd be so cool. Like to have a, 
uh, as complete of a list as possible of what was growing there. So you can you can then now, you know, 30 years later, as a landowner, know what's changed, what's still here and what's not here that's going to make you a better land manager for that property. So to those private landowners out there, to me, that's the, one of the best things you can do. Take an inventory, have a list of what's growing on your place now and and what even what invasives you're dealing with talk about what invasives you have that you're trying to get rid of and and make make put that in a format that you can pass it on to the next landowner whether that's your kids or, or somebody else yeah yeah that would be that would be pretty cool Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. 
So help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. So we've done a survey. We've got an inventory. We know what's out there on our place and we're thinking, okay, you know, now, now what's next? And, and you mentioned how there's kind of a, there's some significant differences between if you're, if you're working with open areas versus if you're working with timbered areas. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk openings. Let's talk grasslands, that kind of stuff. You know, first yeah. off, why in particular, we, we've talked kind of generally, but can you, can you, cover a little bit about why native grassland ecosystems are so darn powerful and important for all sorts of stuff out there that gum i mean i'll talk in, i'll talk i'll talk in the hunter's language look at the prairie states i mean look at the deer killed in the prairie states mm-hmm. that's that's the difference i mean and in the southeast our and well Heck, most of North America was grasslands. It was our dominant ecosystem. <clears throat> and in the southeast, it was the same. Most of our dominant ecosystem down here were, were grasslands. But we have a longer growing season. We have warmer temperatures and more moisture. So a lot of the southeast turned into forest pretty quickly once fire was removed. Um, but the majority, the main, the main uh, ecosystem here were grasslands. And those, those grasslands are powerhouses, man. As, when it comes to deer, like, I mean, this is this is stuff I was learning, you know, five years ago reading Craig Harper's books. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he, you you got like fifty pounds an acre of deer food in a closed canopy forest, <clears throat> in a in an open field of natives. There's upwards of 2,500 pounds of food per acre. That's to me, that's that's enough right there to to make a hunter realize how important these grasslands are to to not just deer but all these other wildlife species as well. The amount of deer food in a grassland far exceeds man. You'd have to have you know how I can't do the math off the top of my head. 50, what is it? Fifty acres? You'd have to have fifty acres of closed canopy forest to do what one acre of of a, of a grassland can do. They're just powerhouses and they provide a ton of cover. For fawns, if you hate, man, if you hate nest predators and 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 fawn killers, make sure your property has that cover first and and a and a good bit of it, not just a one acre that they can come check and walk through the whole thing real quick and and see what's what's laying down in there. Give give your give your <laughs> what is it? Uh, oh gosh, uh, Jerry Jerry Clower down here on the radio. Uh, give him a give him a fighting chance. Mm-hmm. Give give your give your turkeys and give your uh, fawns a fighting chance, man. And that they don't have a fighting chance if they don't have that cover. Um, and and you know your quail that that have disappeared. North Alabama used to have prairie chickens. I know up y'all's way y'all had prairie chickens, but nobody knows that the southeast had prairie chickens. Yeah, we had so much prairie, we had prairie chickens. Um, and they're even more grassland dependent than quail, but our quail are disappearing. Our turkeys have disappeared in, in North Alabama. I mean, they're my county's the worst in the state for turkeys, um, and and uh, you know, bringing back these grasslands, you see that immediate response. Even my front flower beds, man, like in my front yard, I converted part of my yard to a native prairie, and it's maybe maybe twenty foot by sixty foot, and I filled it full of native wildflowers. That first year, you could audibly hear 
the amount of insects in it. Like just like that, it went from dead silent to the noise was almost deafening the amount of insects and pollinators using this little, little bitty strip. And you, you take that 20 foot by 60 foot area and turn it into 20 acres. Think about the amount of food that is for turkeys and, and, and quail and the amount of browse that is for deer and the amount of cover that is. I mean, it's, that's the thing is people have to see this for themselves and it takes little experiences. Like I had my front yard or I had, you know, killing off that prairie on that hunt property. It takes little experiences like that for people to see it for themselves and be like, man, there's really something to this. Like we're starving these things to death. Um, and not just, you know, not just deer. I mean, deer, we're starving them to death too. We're starving deer to death. I mean, that's, you're a, you have you have a real problem there when you have a browse line because of deer, yeah. and you're so far from from correcting that. I mean, it's you're really you're really deep. Then you're really deep into it. It's going to take a lot to fix it. But the grasslands are the first are the first answer, man. If you can take something, if you can take an opening and turn it back into a grassland and provide that year round food and cover and and I mean, that's the, the best thing you can do on a property that has a lot of closed canopy timber. I know that. Yeah. And, and, and not only that, but can you speak a little bit to the benefits that native grasslands have to, to water quality or Man. carbon sequestration or any of these other bigger, bigger things? <clears throat> yeah. So obviously they're, they're cleaning water. They're, they're those deep root systems. So they, native grasses have roots. I mean, anywhere from eight to 15 foot. I mean, and some of your wildflowers are the same, have these big, long tap roots. Um, and that's allowing what's that, what that is doing is basically doing what, what, uh, what tillage radishes do of those, you know, they're breaking that hard pan. They're, they're going w- way, way deep down in the soil, reaching nutrients that, you know, fescue and like these sh- shorter root grasses can't reach. And so they're bringing that nutrients to the top. And that's building your soils and that's improving your soil quality. That's also allowing that water to slow down. Those tall grasses, when water hits it, um, that water slowing down and it's now easier for it to penetrate down into your aquifers and that's cleaning water. When water can get down to our aquifers, it filters it before it even gets to our streams. Um, but talking about carbon, your forests, and forests are storing most of their carbon above ground in the, in the, in the timber, in the logs. And so you're, you're storing that carbon. If you cut that tree down and use it as a wood product, that carbon is then stored in a home for however long that home exists. But native grasses and forbs, man, they're storing 85 to 90% of their carbon underground. And that's why, you know, down, you got the black belt prairie of Alabama. These prairie soils are just really dark and rich. Um, from all the carbon that's stored in them. And and when a fire goes through a grassland, it's burning the tops of those grasses, but it's not releasing the carbon that it's already stored underground. When you have a fire or a wildfire now that's been, you know, that's you're going to get me off on a different topic there, but <laughs> when, 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 uh, when, you know, a fire goes through a forest, it's burning up all those stems and leaves and sticks and down logs and and it's releasing that carbon back in the air. When those logs fall down and they rot on the ground, that carbon's released back in the ground. So it's not necessarily that grasslands are better at sequestering carbon because forests are better at sequestering carbon. Grasslands just store carbon in a safer place. 
to where its likelihood of being released again is very low. So when it comes to that, grasslands are better carbon uh, sequester or better store storing carbon. But yep. um, was that that makes that sense? Last one. Yeah, that makes sense. So okay, so grasslands are going to be incredible producers of food, of cover. They're going to clean our water. They're going to store carbon. They're going to do all these incredible things. I want some. How do I do it? Yeah. I've got some. I've got some openings on my property. Let's say, um, and actually, here, here I'll give you a real life example. Um, I have a a property. I have permission to do some stuff with, as long as I don't mess with the crops. So I, I can't do a ton, but like my main openings that I have are power lines, and the power lines are just full of like I'm not exactly sure what kind of cool season grasses, but it's fescue or some kind of turf grass that's doing nothing. Um, how do you recommend transforming something like that into a healthy native grassland that packs a big punch for wildlife? Well, what's the history on that um, power line? Has it been farmed? Uh, the power line has not <clears> been farmed. <throat> this is just like grassy, okay. cutting through a piece of timber kind of stuff. All right. So that's when you're going to take a different approach. Um, if it still has a native seed bank, you think it still has some natives in that seed bank that could respond. Uh, what you want to do is – <clears throat> go in, I'm guessing, you know, you got a lot of fescue and cool season grasses. Yep. You can go in during November, you know, sometimes March. I prefer doing it in the fall. Um, going in the fall when <clears throat> most everything else has gone dormant and you got to, you're going to want to do it on a day that's in the fifties. Um, so your, you know, glyphosate is working or your herbicide, whatever you're using and, and spray those native grasses. You can even use a grass selective herbicide on those and only kill the the native or the non-native grasses that are green so spray those kill those off and maybe run a fire through it and it might take you a couple years you might have to come back through the next year and do some touching up but uh kill off that that uh non-native grass and see how that seed bank responds see how it responds by just not mowing it by bringing fire back and that's what i did in my pasture and i've had a great response i've had you know i think i've got 50 60 species of of native wildflowers and grasses down there that have come back on their own. Um, and you can, you can watch some videos of that on, on some of my pages. Uh, there's one where you see just tons of, of uh, black eyed Susans, those yellow flowers in the background. That's my pasture. That was once fescue. And now it's a solid blanket of yellow just from the seed bank and just from not mowing it. Cause that first year that these, you're going to get a lot of pioneer species, just like you would a forest. There's successional stages, successional stages, and uh, <clears throat> so you're going to get those pioneer species. You're going to have a lot of ragweed, um, the stuff you find in old fields a lot of the time. Yeah, it's going to take it's going to take longer for your uh, your native your perennials to establish. So some of those um, some of those take three years to get fully grown and established. But uh, not not mowing that during the summer for several years allows those natives to flower and go to seed. And that seed drops on the ground, so you're going to get more the next year. It's going to multiply. Um, so, you know, that first year, really, you could go in there even with some native wildflower plugs and add some native wildflower plugs to it the first year. And those are going to grow and go to seed. And you can, you'd can you be surprised just how one wildflower plug, um, being able to grow and go to seed, how that will multiply year after year if you're not mowing it while it's flowering or before it goes to seed. Um, and that's how I, on something like you're talking about, 
that's probably how I'd approach it. I'd kill the fescue, maybe add a few native plugs if you can find them for your area. Um, if you want to find, if you've got some native seeds available, um, in the Southeast, we don't, our closest one is Roundstone in Kentucky, but up your way, um, where's, where's your place exactly? Southern Michigan. So there's, I don't know about Michigan, but I know, I think Ohio and Indiana, Illinois, I mean, those, there's, there's state native seed producers in those areas. So you can probably get some from them. And after you kill that fescue, that'd be a good time to probably go through and, and just throw out some of those by hand. And, um, you don't have to drill them. If you have a, if you can get a native seed drill from a, from the, you know, NRCS or something in your area, um, you could run through and drill that. Um, that might be a good option the first year, but to me, I honestly enjoy just seeing what comes back from the seed bank. Um, and then, um, if it's not the response I was wanting, then I can go through and add some plugs or throw in some seeds. But I, to me, it's fun seeing what just comes back on its own. Yeah. So in a situation, mine specifically, um, I did a prescribed fire once and actually had the power line company come when I was doing it and flip out on us for doing it near the power line. So I've been gun shy to ever do that again. Can you, can you do this and have success without the fire just doing that cool season spring or is the fire really key? Yeah. I mean, that can, you can have good results from that. Um, and then, and then you're gonna, like I said, let it flower, go to seed, and then in the in the winter, you can mow half of it, um, leave half of it standing, so it's acting as cover. Um, but um, you know, mow it every now and then just to keep it from growing up in trees. But alternate, because that's the main thing. You don't want it to grow up in trees. Right. But you're also not going to get the response you would from fire. I mean, fire is really uh, that's it's the best way and. Man, you must have got really unlucky for that to happen because I've never, <laughs> yeah. I've, I, uh, I've never, I've burned under tons of power lines and they've, I've never had an issue with it. But yeah, I, I don't know if they threatened threatened me with all sorts of stuff and uh, it got me nervous to ever do it again. But maybe I just caught the wrong guys on the wrong day and they were <laughs> making it yeah. seem like it was way more uh, uh, risky. I even had a, I even had a fireman buddy with me. So it was like, we had, we were doing everything right. We weren't too close to the poles, but man, they really gave it to us that we weren't supposed to be doing that. And I don't know. Well, so, so what they say is that if that smoke is thick enough, that the electricity can arc through the smoke down to the ground. Um, Whoa. but I, that's what you, if you Google it, that's what it says, but take this for what it's worth. Um, probably I was in a, I took a, a prescribed fire training class again this year with, with some buddies of mine who wanted to do it just to, just to, uh, just cause I was the last time I took it, I was, it was 2015 and I was, they had no idea what I was even doing then, but I just took it again as a refresher and, and it was with one of the, <clears throat> one of the best prescribed burners in the, I consider in the world probably has done more prescribed fires than anybody else in the world, if not history. This guy burns like 300 days a year. Um, I mean, he'll do like 500 burns in a year, doing multiple burns a day on different properties. Um, but he's he's like he burns under power lines and doesn't worry about it. He said he's never had a problem with it. Um, but for the longest, I was scared because I saw something about it being able to arc. Um, but I still haven't had that issue, and I've started burning in power lines again. Nothing's happened. But um, don't. 
don't uh, take my word for that. Right. If you, <laughs> if that, I'm not, I'm not liable. Yeah. I won't sue you. you so. I won't sue you. Um, so what about, you know, a lot of folks buy a property and there's some tillable on it. And you know, one of the, if they don't want to plant all that tillable and food, or if they're not going to rent it out, um, a lot of folks look at programs like CRP, um, or something like that. What are your, what are your thoughts on those common CRP mixes or, you know, pheasants forever mixes that a lot of folks use, um, different stuff like that. If you're in a government program, that's going to pay for some of that work. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on those things? Make sure it has a lot of biodiversity in it. If it's mostly native grasses, steer clear. Um, I've seen places, um, hold on one second. <clears throat> I've seen places that um, people have planted some of those mixes in, and it was almost all non-native, uh, excuse me, it was almost all native warm season grasses. So blue stem, big blue stem, switchgrass, Indian grass, gama grass. And what happens is that takes over <clears throat> and you don't have any of the forbs. You don't have any of the things that are really attracting insects. You don't have any of the things that are getting browsed by deer. You don't have any of the things that are producing a lot of edible seeds dropping on the ground. So it really sets you up to, to make it hard to get any more native uh, diversity in there because um, those native horses and grasses are really aggressive. So make sure it has a lot of forbs in that mix when you plant it. Um, so that's my advice. And make sure it's an area that you can burn. Um, I've seen places where people did a mix like that, and they're like, well, I can't burn it. Um, and or I can't mow it because it's wet most of the year, and then you got five years worth of of native warm season grass thatch built up, and man, that's not not that's not very good for wildlife. Um, it's going to be really thick, and there's not going to be anything in there for a deer to eat, um, and it's going to be too thick for things to use as nesting cover and stuff. So um, make sure that's what my advice. Make sure it's an area that you can burn, and make sure there's a lot of forbs. Yeah. So, okay. That, that leads me to the, the next question, which you, you alluded to some of the things right here, but, but maybe you can expand on if you do have one of these areas, if you do have a spot where you were able to plant some kind of native grass and forb mix, if you've got ground in CRP, if you've got, you know, a power line that you were able to convert, like I just talked about and you, you've, you've done it, you got, you got this habitat out there, but what's the right way to manage it? What are your, you know, recommendations for how often to create some kind of disturbance and the right way to do that? Well, so that's the, the way I do it is, is I'm, I'm, if you're ever questioning anything, managing native ecosystems, <clears throat> ask yourself, what's going to be the most diverse? How can I make, how can I diversify this? So it's not all the same. Um, so my advice is split it up split it up in several sections, as many sections as you want. Make it a checkerboard, make it uh, look like the American flag if you want. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. And burn, like, or burn or mow one section, leave three sections, burn another one in the fall, burn another one in the spring. Make sure you're leaving half of it standing at all times. Um, and, and that's going to make sure you always have cover you always have a place for wildlife to escape. Um, and you also always have something greening up or something that's going to, you know, burning in the fall really benefits your wildflowers and your forbs because uh, right now 
I don't know about where you're at, but in Alabama, things are starting to green up. And it's all those Forbes. You're seeing a lot of Forbes greening up. And and they drop their seeds at the end of last summer. And those seeds hit the ground. They cold stratified. They started germinating. And now they're growing. If I did a burn right now in the spring, um, it's going to kill a lot of those Forbes that are starting to sprout. And then late summer, your native horses and grasses are going to come in and take over. And so spring burns manage for more native horses and grasses. Fall burns really benefit your forbs and your wildflowers. So mixing it up on your property, doing a little bit of both, do a growing season burn if you have to. If you're dealing with woody plants like trees and briars or whatever, and you don't want them there and there are species that you don't want there, um, you know, if they're native like plums or hazelnut or something, I mean, or, or a sumac, I mean, those are going to be good for uh, wildlife. But if it's something you don't want, do a growing season burn to kill them or do a fall burn to try to kill them. Um, it's really, um, you know, depends on what your what issues you're having. And that's why, um, you know, splitting it up into different sections and diversifying it helps because you might see, hey, this section's starting to get a lot of trees in there. Maybe I should come in here and mow it or treat it with herbicide or whatever. And you're not having to do that to your whole entire place. Um, so split, I'd split up those uh, fields and you can do it with mowed lanes. I, I like mowed lanes because I can use those mowed lanes as fire lines. And if you're a deer hunter, yeah, you can plant those mowed lanes and clover if you want um, and use that green clover as a fire line. Um, and there's different, all kinds of different things you can do. But that's, that's my answer to everything because I had to figure out a lot of these questions on my own. And so when I f- try to think through that through my head, I'm like, what's going to be the best for biodiversity? What's going to make my property the most diverse? Because when I make my property the most diverse – I'm more likely to have what that deer needs um, during a specific time of year. So he's not having to go off my place looking for some, you know, some kind of habitat or something that he's looking for. I've likely got it on my place because I've diversified it. Um, and I've got those, a field that's mostly forbs. I've got a field that's mostly native horses and grasses. I got a strip that's a lot of uh, thickets, you know, you got a lot of thicket species in there, hawthorns and hazelnuts and plums and, and crab apples and, you know, a lot of your native shrub species. So he's, you know, a deer's got that kind of habitat. Quail and turkey have that kind of habitat. Just make it as diverse as possible. And that's, you know, that's the benefit of natives. I mean, we have a lot of native plant diversity in the U.S. and and uh, and they all provide different things. I mean, that one plant can do, you know, so much. I mean, and not to hate on, not to hate on like, um, let's say, uh, Egyptian wheat, like you've got an Egyptian wheat, um, strip that you're using. Um, not to hate on it, but like if you can plant, if you can plant switchgrass and, and you've got ragweed in there, you've got, you got some different silphiums or Maximilian sunflowers, and, um, iron weeds and goldenrods and taller herbaceous species um, mixed in there. Um, one of those herbaceous species, like one of those native grasses in that mix that you're using there is going to provide more than that Egyptian wheat can. Just one of those native species. It's going to, you know, that just let's use the the one that people hate the most like ragweed i mean or goldenrod like even the gold i hate golden 
just use common goldenrod. I got it in my pasture. It's a problem. That common goldenrod is gonna. It has, um, it has insects that depend on it. It has goldfinches that are gonna eat the seed heads off of it and stuff. It's, it's a. Uh, it can get browsed on by you know all kinds of different things, deer and rabbits. Um, that Egyptian wheat doesn't have none of our native insects use it as a host plant. Um, none of our native insects are adapted to using it as a, as a stem to overwinter in. Um, none of our native bird species are used to having it as a food source because they don't really know to go to it all the time. Um, it's not providing browse. I mean, it's the, the things that one not a native plant can do um, is very minimal to what one native plant can do. And then when you say, when you throw in dozens and dozens of native plants into that mix, man, that's when it really becomes a powerhouse compared to, you know, a monoculture of a non-native. Um, so diversity, man, diversity is really the key. And so if you're asking yourself, what should I do to my property? Make it more diverse, add more native plant diversity to it because you, you can't go wrong. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. 
Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. You, you bring up uh, Egyptian wheat, which is a popular screening you know, plant. I've used it myself. Um, yeah, I have too. And um, another one that folks talk about more and more often is miscanthus. Um, so I've got two questions for you related to this. Number one, can you, can you convince me why I shouldn't use miscanthus? And mm -hmm. number two, um, you, you talked about how adding diversity to, you know, these different, different things will be better, but if you had to specifically give me your best recommendation for a native screening mix or option, what would that be? So basically, yeah. why shouldn't well, I use miscanthus? And then secondly, what would I, what should I use instead? Yeah, well, that's really the one I wanted to use as an example there instead of Egyptian wheat. <laughs> but uh, uh, and I would never, I'd never try to convince somebody to not use Egyptian wheat because Egyptian wheat, for one, it's not gonna, it's not a perennial. It's not gonna be there for uh, decades and decades and decades and become a problem for the next. A landowner, even even if it's not invasive, even if it just stays in the spot that you planted it in, and and spreads by rhizomes like miscanthus does, it's you know that's that's the really the problem. I mean, Egyptian wheat is is non-native. Yes, I don't hate non-natives. I plant non-natives uh, in certain situations, um, but Egyptian wheat's not going to become invasive, and it's not going to be there. It, it won't even be there two years from now. Um, but that's the problem with miscanthus is, is people are like, well, it's sterile. You know, we've heard that before from a lot of things. Um, but let's just say, let's just pretend, yes, it is sterile and it's not going to spread by seeds. Well, it's spreading right now because we're planting it and we're putting it on properties all across the country, hunting properties, which are, you know, look across the landscape I'm, I'm going to go the long route with, with explaining this, but look across the landscape, look at all the different land uses. You've got agriculture, you've got housings, neighborhood development, um, pastures. And I mean, there's not many places for native plants to thrive. The one place where I believe that native plants can thrive the most are on hunting properties and rural, rural hunting properties. Yet our rural hunting properties are under attack by a lot of these invasives that are brought in from, you know, the horticulture trade to these neighborhoods and stuff. And so you're getting a lot of these neighborhood landscaping plants escape on your property. I don't know about you, but I have more invasives than I want to deal with on my own property. Mm -hmm. um, the last thing we should be doing as hunters is planting something that's going to take more ground away from our native habitats. And so that's exactly what Miscanthus does, even if it doesn't spread by seed. It's just like bamboo. You plant it in one spot, and that one rhizome you plant isn't going to come up as one stem. 
it's not going to stay one stem each year. Those stems multiply. It's rhizomes multiply, and it and it grows. It spreads by rhizomes, and it and it fills in that space to where no natives can grow in there. Um, like if it's a solid monoculture, there's no diversity in there, and so it's another. We've just essentially created another thicket of bush honeysuckle and how invaluable it is to wildlife. This is the same thing. We've, we've taken more of our North American ground and where native North American species should be. And we've put a, you know, a non-native species in this place that our wildlife can't utilize. They can't use it as a food source. They can't use it in the same, you know, as the same nesting habitat that they would really like to. Um, and you're going to say, yeah, it provides even more cover. I'd say it provides too much cover for, for our cer- certain wildlife species. It's too much. Um, and it's too thick for them to utilize the way they should or the way they want to. Um, but um, I was trying to think, what's the, what was the, where was I going second part, um, well, the second part was then, okay, if, oh, I, native, if I shouldn't native. use miscanthus, yeah, what's my best alternative? Yeah. Man, uh, for one, oh, here's what I did on my property is I just stopped mowing and I just let it grow up. But <clears throat> I've, I've been adding in native plums, native, you know, hawthorns, uh, depending on what your soil is like and what shrubs you can support. Those native shrubs are powerhouses, man, like power houses i saw a possum hall this year that i'm talking it had to be hundreds of thousands of berries on this thing the ground was solid red from a from a uh, from a possum hall shrub <laughs> that's food it's called possum hall because possums and raccoons and 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 other things eat it and heck the the more you, you people are like why would you want to feed a raccoon the more you can keep a raccoon fed the less likely it's going to be eating something you don't want it to eat. Right. Um, and it's providing food for birds, songbirds. So native plums, food source, native hazelnut, food source. There are also host plants for a ton of native insects. So you're attracting insects to your property, food source for quail and turkeys. Miscanthus can't do any of that stuff. And it, it, it at the same time, these native plums and hazelnuts are allowing for other native species to grow amongst them. Native grasses can grow underneath. Um, uh, you know, just the the plum trees behind my house, they have uh, wild rye grass growing underneath them, uh, Virginia wild rye. And those produce, they were consumed by Native Americans, the seed heads, like you would a grain. Um, and they're consumed by wildlife, the, the grain head is. Um, and tons of wildflowers are coming up underneath them. Um, and so you can plant a diverse mix. That's, that's really what I'd like to promote. Um, instead of miscanthus is hedgerows, native thicket species, um, and native grasses and forbs that can grow amongst those. So you can do a multi-tier. If you want a screen on the edge of your property, plant a row of native plums, hawthorns, whatever you can get your hands on native, native shrub species, dogwoods, um, uh, like the swamp dogwoods, uh, and then plant a row of native grasses and forbs, and you're you're going to have a really great screen that's also going to become an excellent nesting habitat for things like quail. Um, and when we can benefit 
when we can have something that's fulfilling our human need, which is all Miscanthus is doing, it's we're using it to fulfill a human need. If we can have something that fulfills that human need, but is also playing a huge role in our ecosystem, and it is is a habitat type that is dwindling in our country that is not common anymore, we're doing a good thing. And and in in twenty years when hunting properties everywhere have miscanthus on them and everybody's like that i just bought this hunting property i've got to deal with this miscanthus first which for you know by the way um that miscanthus gigantis is one of the more difficult ones to uh, get rid of with, with glyphosate it takes multiple treatments of glyphosate to get rid of it um those those landowners aren't going to be blaming uh the folks selling miscanthus they're going to say well daggum the, the hunter's the hunters who had this property before us planted miscanthus and and the last thing i want to do for my my kid or you know my grandkids is is give hunters a bad look because i want to make sure that when they become hunters and when they're taking their grandkids hunting that hunters are looked at as conservation leaders in our country and the the biggest conservation powerhouse which i believe we are and but I want the public to see hunters as that, and I don't want to give the public any reason to to be upset with hunters. Um, and and that's just one way. I mean, I think we should become bulletproof. And when and when we're leading conservation and doing things the right way, we'll we're, we'll become bulletproof, and nobody can say anything to us. I mean, they can't say we're doing things wrong when we are the ones out here uh, keeping. North American ecosystems thriving. I mean, I really believe that that's what hunters can be. And I believe that's what most of us already are. Yeah. Um, but that's to me, that's, that's how I see it. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. I'm not passionate about it because I, I, I hate invasives. I mean, I am, but I do hate invasives, but I'm passionate about it because I don't want to give hunters a bad name uh, and not for selfish reasons, but for reasons you know, for my, my kids and my future grandkids, I mean, I want them to be hunters and I want to make sure that they're going to be able to do the things that I love. Yeah. And that's the, I mean, that's without hunting, man, that's, I wouldn't, the native habitat project wouldn't be a thing. I mean, that's the whole reason I'm into what I'm into and I'm out here doing what I'm doing is because I grew up hunting with my dad and my granddad. And I mean, that's what I want for my kids and my great, great, great grandkids. So making sure hunters have a good, good, uh, you know, PR with the public. I mean, that's, that's super, super, super important to me. And that's, that's all I'm concerned about. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I couldn't agree more with all that. And, uh, and on the Miscanthus thing, I'm, I'm convinced you got me, you got me on that too. So, yeah. yeah. So, well, uh, I mean, what were you going to say? Oh, oh, that, and, and uh, that's, you know, I'm not, I, people think I just hate on invasives, but man, like, or I hate on non-natives. And it's not, it's not that man. There's a, there's a huge difference between non-native and non-native invasives. And, and, you know, you can, you can plant, there's all sorts of things that are non-native, like Egyptian wheat that you can plant. And it's not going to become a problem. And I, you know, we've, I worked on a wildlife management area where we had to deal with autumn olive and bicolor lespediza and sawtooth oaks spreading. I mean, yeah, and that's a, that's a bad word, I know, but 
I, I saw for myself sawtooth oak spreading by the thousands and, and out competing native oak trees. And I, and I saw, you know, it was, that was hunters doing that. I mean, we planted those for wildlife and we were going to do a good thing. And I just want to make sure we, we learn from those mistakes and, and we were actually planting things that are, are going to do a good thing. And when we plant native, we don't have to question whether what we're planting is going to backfire on us in the future because those plants are supposed to be there. Um, so it's a pretty foolproof system. If you plant native, you know, you're not going to, um, you know, regret it one day. And there's plenty of things that I've planted. I'm sure, I'm sure there's things you've planted and half the listeners have planted mm-hmm. that we regret. Um, I'm still dealing with rye grass on, on one of my grasslands because I planted it there in a food plot mix and it's, hmm. It's really became aggressive, but um, there's we you you know you can't mess up when you plant native. I mean, it's it's pretty foolproof. Yeah, and I like something you've said. I think even today and in other places, you've talked about how natives always carry their weight. Like they're they're never just yeah. doing you know one single thing. They're always serving multiple purposes, and they're they're there for a reason, and they they yeah. serve multiple purposes for all different levels of the yeah. ecosystem, which is which is yeah. a pretty powerful thing. Man, and then and purposes that you and I will never even be able right, to comprehend. Right. You know, we'll never be able to wrap our heads around uh, what a what a grassland with a with even a hundred spe- hundred native species out there. We'll never be able to wrap our heads around what all that ecosystem provides. Um, I mean, it's doing things that we'll never we'll never even know, but it's doing, we know it's doing good things. Yeah, let's uh, let's shift into the timber now. So okay. let's say we've, we've done our inventory in the timber. We're starting to do that. We're walking around. We're trying to ID different trees. We're trying to figure out, okay, what's supposed to be here? What's not? Um, I think there's probably a lot of people that'll be wondering, well, how do I know if this is a good thing to have or not a good thing to have? Where should I manage timber? How should I manage it? Um, what would be some of your starting points for someone who's you know, wanting to take this native uh, approach and this ecosystem approach and apply it to their timbered lands? Um, the first thing I do <clears throat> is I, I look at what's in the understory. Um, I also look at the slope aspect. If it's, if it's got any kind of hills like we have around here, um, your north slopes, your east slopes, or really your northeast and north slopes are going to be, are, are traditionally going to be closed canopy forests. Um, you're going to have spring ephemerals on those sides of the hills, and that's why those that's why those spring ephemerals are there because those spring ephemerals flower this time of the year before right before the leaves come back on the trees because they know in a few months when there's leaves on the trees there's going to be so much shade that nothing's going to be able to grow. So those spring ephemerals are adapted to closed canopy forests, so they're all flowering right now while there's still sunlight on the ground. Um, but you don't, you know. That's on north slopes, northeast slopes, bottomlands, places where there wouldn't historically have been fire. So like ravines, uh, deep draws, uh, places where there's a lot of moisture, where you see tulip poplar and um, maples and beech and lots of hemlocks and things like that. So your south slopes, your ridge tops, your west slopes, sometimes your east and southeast facing slopes were predominantly um, savannas or drier, they got sunlight on them throughout the winter and that kept them dry and they got fire a lot. Um, so those places are where 
you can manage for savannas very easily because you know you're going to be able to use fire. Um, it's going to be dry enough. That's what's supposed to be there. Um, and you, there's usually still remnant savanna species there. So, you know, on those south slopes and, and ridge tops and, and some flat, rolling, dry places where there would have been grasslands and savannas, you find <clears throat> around here you look for remnant trees like post oaks and chinkapins and blackjacks, shortleaf pines, um, you know, chestnut oaks, a lot of those upland hardwoods with very real lofty, you know, white oaks have those real lofty leaves. Um, if, if there's a lot of those real lofty leaf trees there, then you know those are trees that like fire. So you think about think about water oak and willow oak, those bottomland um, oak species. They have those very tiny leaves that lay flat on the ground. So fire doesn't move through them very well. And that's because they're, they're adapted to growing in places that would have had fire. Your upland oaks would have had fire, so they have those real lofty leaves. And when those leaves burned through those oaks, when those pine needles burned, it, it got hot. And, and those upland oaks and those pines are adapted to that. They can handle it. Those hickories can handle that fire. But what can't handle that fire is your beech and your maple, um, some of your tulip poplars, sweet gums, um, and those cedars, trees that aren't supposed to be there, that aren't fire tolerant because they can't handle fire. And <clears throat> that's how those ecosystems adapted. So when you're going into those places, figuring out what should be there and what shouldn't, um, keep those, and not all of them. You can remove some of those upland hardwood species, but you know, keep some of those and remove the the species that aren't supposed to be there. Um, and you think about sweet gums, like how, how I'm guessing do y'all have sweet gums up your way or no, I don't think so. Well, you probably wouldn't know, but they sweet gums, their leaves just crumble, man. When you pick them up, they just crumble because they grow in bottomland areas. They don't like fire. So get rid of those species. Um, and, and, uh, and that's going to open things up. And what that's going to do, is you're bringing sunlight to the ground. And that's the first thing you really want to do before you bring fire back to a place. Because if you bring fire back to a place and it's closed canopy, you're not going to get that response you want. And then it's just going to be bare soil under there. So you want to come through and, and kill some of those trees first. You can either do that through, you know, the hack and spray, um, girdling. Um, and this is a great time to remove invasives too. Um, Bradford pears and privet and, tree of heaven and stuff like that kill them you know this is a great time to take care of a lot of those but go through and kill those trees that aren't supposed to be there um, you can drop them saw them and drop them down on the ground and leave those stumps uh to re-sprout or you can treat some of those stumps and you know how i said before being diverse with it if you're ever wondering how to go about something be diverse with it don't don't go through there and just hack and spray don't go through there and just hinge cut if you want to i mean but Go through there and do a mix of things like um, just cut a tree down, let it resprout. Obviously, if it's invasive, cut it, cut it down and treat the stump. But treat half the stumps, leave some of them untreated, and just be diverse with it. Um, but you want to bring that sunlight in because once you get that sunlight in, you can run a fire through there, and you're going to get a really good response from that seed bank. Then you're going to get a lot of understory native grasses and wildflowers. And I mentioned earlier that closed canopy forest that has 50 pounds of food per acre when you open up that canopy, bring fire back, you're bringing in not two, not 2,000 pounds, but you might be bringing in 500 pounds of food per acre 
and that's only going to improve your wildlife habitat. And those are going to be areas that are perfect for hiding fawns and and nesting turkeys. And that's what you want. You want that those trees that are protecting from aerial predators, and you want that grassland complex underneath those trees to provide cover and provide food um, and attract insects and all those things, a million things I've mentioned before, but um, that you want that mix of a grassland and a forest. And to me, man, that's like the optimal ecosystem. Savannas, you got mass producing trees. You got, when it's open like that, you get those oak trees that sprawl out with those big limbs yeah. and those become excellent roosting trees and the turkeys can fly up to them. Um, because there's not a lot of shrubs and stuff in the way you got, if you're using fire, it's open, they can fly up and roost in those trees. Um, you've got, you got all the benefits of a grassland, you got all the benefits of a forest. Um, and it's just the, to me, the, the ideal ecosystem. Is there, you know, you mentioned the, the, the couple or three, I think different ways you can kill those trees, girdling them, cutting them, cutting them and, uh-huh. Probably on the herbicide, and then I guess it was the fourth yep. you mentioned hinge cut, and I like yep. I like the point you made about you know diversify like everything diversify. That's a great kind of guideline to apply across all of your different mm-hmm. land work. Always have different ways you're doing it, but yep. when it comes to those specific you know timber management practices, I guess are yep. there any that work best for certain goals? Like I'm thinking like in, if you're trying to diversify your timber. You know, one of the things a lot of deer hunters are trying to do is like, hey, I want to also make sure I've got some particularly good bedding areas or different things like that. Um, are there any certain ways of cutting and killing a tree or managing this timber best for certain goals? Well, you know, <clears throat> providing cover, bedding areas, a lot of those methods that people use like hinge cutting or just piling up trees. I like making brush piles. I feel like those get utilized a good bit, but these are all just band-aids. They're all just, um, really, uh, they're not what the wildlife really want. You're just trying to mimic what's supposed to be there. So <clears throat> if you want those things covered and stuff like that, that's where thickets come in play. I mean, um, around here in the South, um, well, that's what Alabama means. Alabama means thicket clears. Uh, huh. People who that is it means clearing thickets because we are so we have so much, uh, you know, so many thickets and stuff down here. But <clears throat> if you want that, just cut down a bunch of. It's going to take longer. That's the thing. You can you can cut down those trees and have some temporary cover, but make sure your end goal is to make like a thicket of plums or hazelnuts or. Or, or, you know, dogwoods, and there's a million, y'all probably have a ton of shrub species up there that we don't have, but get some shrubs in there. And so that gives you the more, that's called a woodland. So you have grasslands, and then you have where grasslands start going to forest, you have savannas, which are grasslands with overstory of trees, and then you have woodlands, which are, which are forests with the grasslands underneath a little bit, but a lot of shrubs. You got a shrub component. And so I think that's what woodlands are good at, um, but also just having shrubs on edges of openings um, gives you that. You know, people love that feathered edge look. Yeah, yeah. Fields. And you talk about using trees, cutting them down, and making that temporary feathered edge with those trees. But really, your end goal should be to have have it go from forest to shrubs to grasslands 
and have that shrubby complex there on the edge because that's going to be great bedding uh, cover. So, yeah, you you use hinge cuts. Use, I mean, that gum. I mean, put it make you a giant wall of downed logs, and I mean, a bug's probably going to bed against that. I mean, but it's all temporary until you can get what's supposed to be there established. And that's kind of should be your end goal, I, I believe. Um, but you know, I mentioned those methods of using saws and stuff. That's the you know, those, that's my poor boy method. And that's what I can do, you know, when I get off work or whatever, I mean, you can go and do those things, but you can also do it at a large scale. I mean, no, you can use it in mulchers and, um, I mean, if you really have to, and, and you can use logging crews. I do that a lot with my job as a forester. I, I did a lot of Savannah restorations by having a crew come in and log it. And man, that is the, that's the best way if you have a large acreage, that's the best way to get a really good response quickly. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, you have, you know, you have those upland hardwood species. Obviously, it's going to be tempting. You People are going to want to go in there and do the opposite of a high grade where you leave, you know, high grading is leaving all the crap trees and only cutting the good trees. So mm-hmm. like your big oak, you know, oaks and, and uh, hickories and, you know, the trees that are going to make you money and leave in the crap trees. You don't want to do that, but you also don't want to go in there and cut all the crap trees and just leave your big, um, you know, you don't want to leave your property covered in giant white oaks because every time the wind blows, you're going to be, you're not going to be able to sleep at night. You're going to be like, there's, I've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of white oaks there that are now opened up to the wind. They're going to blow over. So um, what I used to do is I, I go in and market and I'm, Remove the maples and the beech and the and the sweet gums and some poplars and and remove your bigger, um, you know, make sure you're not just leaving the inferior white oaks. But if you have some young white oaks, or young oaks and hickories, leave like the middle-aged ones, you know, compared to the just giant uh, timber quality ones. You can make some money on that and then. Um, then it's gonna you're gonna be able to get a logger in there easier when you say hey you can cut some of these bigger white oaks but make sure you make sure you uh, uh, mark it because uh, you don't want them to just go in you don't just want to turn a logger loose on your place without marketing but um, in the end what you have is a savanna it's gonna grow up in the grasslands and you're gonna bring fire back to it but your trees are gonna be those middle aged oaks and hickories and things like you know short leaf pines or whatever. They're not going to be so tall that they blow over because, you know, they've been growing in in a forest with a bunch of trees around them to protect them. So they haven't really put in that root structure that's going to hold them up to winds. But if you leave a lot of the middle-aged ones, they're not going to blow over. And it's going to give them times to form those root systems and be get used to being out in somewhat open areas. Um, but that's how you can go about it without just using a chainsaw and, and a bottle of herbicide you can do it at a larger scale with with a timber harvest if you if you find a good forester and and, and if you want to find a good forester that native habitat managers page is good for that finding somebody in your area that has used somebody for a job like that yeah well uh speaking of that native habitat managers uh page that sounds like a great resource um i've kept you here john away with your sore throat for for a good long time, which I appreciate, but I feel like I should let you get back to it. Um, so where could folks go to get more resources from you? Where can they see your content and connect with you and all that good stuff, Kyle? 
Yeah. Um, well, yeah, um, we've got, I, I post videos on YouTube and Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. Um, and then we have a podcast, um, that we, we put on pause for a while, um, because Jake and I, uh, we both just had newborns within, you know, a month of each other. So we were like, uh, for our wife's sakes, we're going <laughs> to put the podcast on pause, but we're about yeah. to start it back up. We have a lot of good episodes on there, but, um, that's, a uh, that's where you can find us. And, uh, we're also on Patreon. People donate on there and we use that towards restoring some, you know, rare grassland sites. And, uh, and we're, we, we're about to start, we're about to start selling some t-shirts with a uh, specific, uh, plant species on there. So I mentioned earlier, finding rare stuff on grass or on roadsides. Um, there's some species in our state like leafy prairie clover that, that only has like three populations in the state. And we're going to start selling T-shirts with that leafy prairie clover on there. Um, and all that money is going to go towards conserving that and hopefully, hopefully um, buying some of those properties and make sure they're um, safe for conservation. So that's something else cool we're doing. So just you can find all that by following us on on uh, Instagram or Facebook. So, But uh, that's about it, man. And appreciate you having me on. Oh yeah, that, that's uh, that's some really cool stuff. I, I'm I'm glad that I've discovered your your content and your work, and uh, I'm glad you're out there doing it. So thank you for that, Kyle, and uh, thanks for sharing all this with us today. Yeah, I appreciate it too, man. Um, well, I'm happy to come back on whenever. So if you if you ever have uh, any more uh, topics like this, I'd be happy to talk about it. Maybe maybe next time my voice uh, <laughs> will be back. So yes, yeah, I feel like we're we're just scraping the surface on a lot of this stuff. So uh, yeah, we'll definitely need to have you on for for a second go around, and uh, I'll make sure to schedule it not right after the big old turkey convention. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I got it. Just so happened to we have a pregnant goat down here in my podcast studio. We have is at my <laughs> barn, and we just had a, our goat literally had three babies as I was walking into the to do this <laughs> podcast. So. I got to go check on some baby goats too. So, yep. Priorities. We'll get after it, Kyle. Thanks again. Appreciate it, man. We'll see you later. And that is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed this one. Thanks for being here. Hope you enjoyed this entire month of habitat related discussions. Um, I've certainly learned a lot. I'm excited to get out on the ground doing some of this work myself. Uh, Starting next week. Mr. Tony Peterson, my good friend and uh, partner in crime in a lot of the stuff we do here at Wired to Hunt, is taking over. He's going to do an off-season project series. We're going to talk about all sorts of interesting things. He's going to be talking through scouting and shed hunting and turkeys and all sorts of good stuff that we can be focusing on this time of year as we kind of prepare for that next phase of the year. So be sure to check back in next week for that. Check in for more details from me on the Working for Wildlife Tour coming soon. And until next time, thanks for being here and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor Adventure won't wait for engine problems. 
Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. 